Thank you, Pastor Bryce, for that introduction, and good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're all keeping well and have had a blessed day. Uh, I just want to thank God for um, maybe some of my students are also watching online. We've just come to the end of uh, a two-week intensive, finished this morning, and um, I know some of them said that they would tune in uh, with us and join us this afternoon. So I want to say hi to you guys as well. So um, we're carrying on our journey through Acts, and um, yesterday we were looking at Luke's use of comparison and contrast. Comparison is where we put two things together, and we are invited to look for the similarities. We saw how Peter and Paul, when we look at them, have more in common than they have different, and that really gives us a template for how we should look at our brothers and sisters in the church. We should be looking at each other and affirming what we have in common, and that's really the essence of church unity. But sometimes Luke also employs contrast, and that's where he puts two stories side by side, and he asks us, to identify the differences, the difference between Joseph, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Ananias and Sapphira. So these are literary techniques that Luke is using in order to invite us as readers to really sort of ponder on uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone involved in this mission that moves through Jesus, through to Peter, through to Paul, and then we look at our own lives and we say, Lord, are you operating in a similar manner? If not, please do. That's where we are so far. Today, I would like us to focus on the gospel for the Hebrews. Now, looking at that, I really need to change my title. The title should be, maybe more accurately, The Gospel Preached by the Hebrews. Maybe that would be more accurate as to what we're going to look at this afternoon. Tomorrow, we are going to look at the gospel preached by the Hellenists, and that may have something more Uh, relevant to us as mostly Gentiles living outside of Palestine, but today we are looking at the gospel for the Hebrews, by the Hebrews, preached by the Hebrews, the message shared in Jerusalem. And we're going to learn something very interesting that I would pray actually gives us a way of thinking about early Christianity and how we can counteract some of those criticisms that are hurled at us by uh, wider secular society as they critique Christianity, not from a theological point of view, but from a historical point of view. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Lord, who are about to open your word, may your spirit lead us into truth. May you give me words that are encouraging, faith-affirming, and that just lift you up, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's start off with a brief reminder of where we have come uh, in terms of the Hebrews. We started on Monday by looking at Acts 1 verse 8, and this was this programmatic statement that you are to take my name from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And we have seen how that worked, starting off in Jerusalem, and then the Hellenists, these Jewish Hellenist Christians, take the gospel out to uh, the surrounding areas, and then eventually Paul takes it right to Rome itself. And this is 
a narrative of expansion, of conquest. It's God's presence through His Holy Spirit, working through His witnesses, testifying about Jesus, spreading His presence in the world. Now, just in case you're wondering, have we all become Anglicans? Anglicans back in the UK, Episcopalians here, uh, many of them believe that essentially we can create heaven on earth. Is that what Luke is about? Is that why we're filling God's pres- the world with God's presence? No, because whenever we read the sermons, they always look beyond this. We're filling God's presence because the king is going to return to his creation. And when he comes, he comes with his crown and his scepter, and he is not just ruler, he is also judge. So we are preparing the world for judgment. So so this is, that is an element of Paul's, uh, Luke's theology, which um, maybe we haven't emphasized yet. Uh, also yesterday, I was emphasizing the continuity between Jesus and Peter and Paul. What we haven't covered is how Jesus is different from Peter and Paul. Why is it that we worship Jesus, but we don't worship Peter or Paul? What makes Jesus different? And uh, that really is uh, another subject but a a beautiful subject, and maybe another opportunity we can look at that. So, we're looking here at this movement out from Jerusalem, and tomorrow we will look at the gospel messages that are preached as this movement spreads. But today, we are going to stay in Jerusalem, and we're going to focus on what the early believers in Jerusalem actually preached. Um, Who were they? I've mentioned that they are referred to as the Hebrews in chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, We can note a a distinction. All the believers there were Jews or maybe proselytes, the odd proselyte, we are told in chapter 6. But the Hebrews are most likely the Aramaic speakers or those who grew up in Judea, whereas the Hellenists are probably diaspora Jews who have returned back to Jerusalem, whether to live or whether it was just for Passover. So this is the distinction that we've already introduced. These two groups are held together by the bilingual uh, folk, people like Barnabas, people like Paul. These are bilingual, and if you are bilingual, you have a unique opportunity to straddle more than one community within the church. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to learn a second language, third language, whatever. It makes us more useful for the Lord. So that puts Paul into that category. We have in this group the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, and the family of Jesus. And um, Jerusalem church is the tradition church. It's the church where the traditions of Jesus are maintained and uh, 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 they are looked after, and as the gospel spreads and moves into new areas, these new areas are constantly referring back to Jerusalem, and we need Jerusalem churches in our church today. They put the brake on things, whereas if you move to Antioch, they've got their foot on the accelerator, and we need both those tensions in the church with those who maintain the traditions of the church and those who see, hey, how can we use this 
in new fields. And the church needs both, one without the other, and we go either stale just with Jerusalem or we go wild just with Antioch. So this is part of the theology that we pick up within Acts. Uh, <clears throat> we have, as I have mentioned, a very, very diverse church uh, in Jerusalem. We have many priests. Incredible thing to believe that we've got priests in the church in Jerusalem. They have rejected the narrative of the chief priests and decided that they would follow the narrative of the early apostles. We've got circumcised believers there. We've got members of the sect of the Pharisees, chapter 15, and we've got thousands of Jewish believers in chapter 1, verse 20, who are zealous for the law. Scholars today really reject the idea that this group could have been anything but Sabbath keepers. Uh, if we place this against its historical background, Jewish sources, any of those descriptions would mark out a Sabbath keeper in that era. And we just have to assume that if we're not told they didn't keep Sabbath, then you, by default, assume that they were Sabbath keepers. And that's where, as an Adventist, I want my, our church to reflect the full variety of type of people that we had in the early church. They should find a home in our church today. So, there we have just uh, an introduction to this group. These are the Hebrews, the maybe Aramaic-speaking uh, believers in Jerusalem, the family of Jesus, his brothers like James and Jude, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the apostles, and they are the ones who reside in Jerusalem and um, uh, are really the authorities as to what Jesus said and did during his lifetime. So, let us move on and ask the question, what did this group actually preach? And we're going to look at one sermon in a little more detail, a sample sermon, and uh, I'm going to just uh, read through the whole thing, and as we go through, it's maybe 10, 12 verses, but bear with me, you know, there's nothing so good as to read Scripture. I shouldn't have to apologize for this. We're going to read the sermon, and then I'm just going to give a brief overview, and then we're going to back away, and we're going to look at some themes that we get in this sermon and some of the other sermons that we find the apostles preaching in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5 of Acts. These are the sermons preached in Jerusalem by the Hebrews. So, if you have your Bibles with me, turn to Acts chapter 3, and we're looking at Peter's sermon uh, in chapters 3, and I'm going to start with verse 11, and I'm reading down to the end of the chapter. Chapter 3 from verse 11, and I'm going to read the whole passage. And as I read through, what I want you to think about is the type of language used. Is this language you could use with Gentiles, or is this language specific to Jews? How is Jesus described? Is it in a very Jewish way, or is it maybe in a more generic way? Just think of these things. What are the sources of authority that Peter is appealing to as he works through his sermon? The occasion here is the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, which we have in verses 1 to 10. So, let me read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Here we go. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, 
utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you hand over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance and did as your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through His holy prophets. Moses, one of the prophets, said, The Lord your God will raise up for you, for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you, and it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly uprooted out of the people." And all the prophets, as many have has spoken, from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to our ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So there we have Peter's sermon, which he preaches in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is estimated to be a, have been about the size from the base to the top, about the size of uh, a European cathedral. It was huge, huge. And there he is preaching in this open area to those who have run after they have seen uh, this uh, this. Uh, uh, lame man who was healed. Now, let's briefly outline what we've got here going on. So, he starts off in verses 12 to 15 by essentially telling them, you Israelites, what have you done? You have killed the righteous one. You have rejected him. Uh, you have handed him over to Pilate, to the Gentiles. He would have released him, but you insisted. You had him killed. So, that, there's the first portion of the sermon. He then moves on in verse 16 to explain how this former leper is now running around uh, <clears throat> with a, a spring in his step. And the reason is, is that it is through faith in His name. Whose name? Jesus' name. 
And what we find is, is that this is really Old Testament theology. I will flag this up later as we go through our seminar together, is that throughout Luke, you are saved through the name of Jesus. This is Old Testament uh, theology. In the Old Testament, you are saved by appealing to the name of Yahweh. Um, for me, the two most beautiful verses in the Bible are the declaration of the Lord in Exodus 34, the name, the name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it carries on. And really, the rest of Scripture is simply explaining and illustrating the name. You appeal to the name and you are saved. And the incredible thing is, is that in the Old Testament, every Jew knows that they appeal to Hashem. We don't actually say the, the name Yahweh. It is too holy to say. Instead, we refer to Lord, my Lord, Adonai, or we simply refer to Him as Hashem, which in Hebrew just means the name. So here we have this transfer. Instead of appealing to Yahweh, we're now appealing to the name of Jesus. He functions in the same way as Yahweh in the Old Testament. It is by His name that this lame man now runs and walks. And then we come to verses 17 and 18. Uh, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Oh, oh, how I love the, the theology of Luke. This is unique to Luke. We don't get this in Mark. We don't get it in, uh, in uh, Matthew. Luke is such a forgiving person. As I was going through this material again, I was thinking, wouldn't I love to have Luke in my church? Wouldn't I love to have him? He alone has Jesus on the cross uttering these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're acting in ignorance. And, you know, we as objective bystanders, we look at Jesus on the cross and we say, Lord, they know exactly what they're doing. It is out of jealousy, says Mark, that they put him on the cross. It is out of envy that they put him on the cross. We know why they are doing it, but Luke, he says, oh, no. They, his Jesus says they acted in ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that theme comes up again here in the sermon of Peter. Lord, uh, uh, well, uh, it's not Lord, but friends, I know that you acted in ignorance. And then he tells us that this actually was part of God's plan. So most Jews were not were expecting a Messiah, but uh, most Jews were not expecting a Messiah who would die. What is the point of having a king who dies? Yeah, they're not expecting that, but Peter says that this was according to God's plan. It wasn't that all the events were simply God taking his hands off the steering wheel and things ending up in a, a chaotic situation. No, this was part of God's plan. Uh, and it's all part of his plan in order that, in the end, our sins may be wiped out. And then we move to verse 21, where he talks about the Messiah. So you're waiting for your king. He will come, but he's not coming back yet. 
He will come. Uh, why? Because when He comes, He's not just going to restore Israel, but there's going to be a universal restoration. He has an agenda which goes beyond Israel. It also includes the Gentiles, and that means that there is a story not just for Israel that needs to be told, but there are other stories as Jesus deals with the other nations. And then He moves to the prediction of Moses. Moses, Deuteronomy 18, predicted that there would be a prophet like him who would arise and that uh, he would be the means by which God would speak through Israel. And uh, Peter reminds them of this, and then he identifies this figure with Jesus, so you need to listen to him. And then he finishes with the promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed, and you, Israel, have already received your blessing as Jesus came to you, and the blessing is to turn you from your wicked ways, and later we find Paul, he interprets that as the blessing of the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose of salvation, not just forgiveness. We have to understand that salvation is not just dealing with our sins. It's one thing to take bad stuff out of your life. God's plan is greater than that. It's to put something good in your life, and that good blessing is the giving of the Holy Spirit, and this is what we have throughout Acts. So, there we have, in brief, an overview of Peter's sermon. Now, let's just dig a little deeper. And um, uh, let's see if this thing's gone to sleep. It has. If I throw it on the ground, it might come back to life. Oh, there we are. Are we together upstairs? Okay. <clears throat> Can we back up one? There we go. So, the main thrust of Peter's sermon is something like this. Repent for crucifying the Messiah. Listen to Him. Turn from your wicked ways so that you may receive from Him refreshing. Uh, that would be my summary of Peter's message if I had to summarize it in one sentence. When we think about the Christology here, we find Jesus is portrayed as the servant of God, the righteous one, the author of life, the Messiah. He's a mosaic prophet. What we find, and we will contrast this with what Paul does when he's with the Gentiles, we find a thoroughly Jewish Jesus here, thoroughly Jewish. He is portrayed in terms which spring out of the Old Testament to us. And um, <clears throat> some, interestingly enough, some of these titles uh, get picked up and used again and again and again, like Messiah, uh, servant. Um, others tend not to be used so frequently in the rest of the New Testament. So we don't often have him referred to as author of life or, um, uh, let's see, yeah, maybe the righteous one. That's certainly in the Gospel of Matthew. His function is to turn people from their sins. Now, when it comes to soteriology, soteriology is just a long uh, uh, word which refers to how we are saved. How are we saved? And here is the interesting thing, is that when we read this sermon, salvation occurs through the name of Jesus. Salvation is not explicitly. Now, we might argue implicitly, but it's not explicitly linked to the death of Jesus. This may come as a surprise. I just want you to be patient, and I'll talk you through how this works. So, salvation, 
we usually think, I am saved. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for me. And I just want you to know, I'm going to say this straight out, I believe that is true. Okay? I believe Jesus died for my sins. But when we read the sermons in Jerusalem, that's not exactly what we find. We find that the death of Jesus is not explicitly linked to salvation and to forgiveness. If we read, yes, His death was intended, but then repent for your sins to be forgiven. And the two, although they are in close association, they're not explicitly linked at this point in the sermons in Acts. So, uh, <clears throat> repentance is something which we undertake whether or not we understand what the death of Jesus was about. So, this is an overview of one of our sermons. And um, this raises the question, how did the apostles use the Old Testament to explain the death of Jesus. Because as we go through this sermon, we find that Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. And in his earlier sermon at Pentecost, he quotes from the Old Testament. And it raises the question in my mind, where did Peter get these verses? You see, uh, I've taught now for five years at the seminary, eight years back at Newbold. I was a pastor for nine years before that. And what I know is, is that people's theology changes relatively slowly. It takes a long time to change someone's ways of thinking. And that makes it frustration with evangelism, but it makes it great for pastoral care because you baptize them and they don't suddenly convert to another religion. God has placed within us a resistance to change, and uh, that is both uh, makes it hard for evangelism, but it also uh, tends to keep us in the faith. So how is it that Peter is using these texts. And this is my suggestion to you. If we go back to Luke, also the author of Acts, so let's assume that there is a consistency here. He tells us, alone out of the evangelists, of the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you remember how after the resurrection they were uh, uh, sorry, after the death of Jesus, they were walking back to Emmaus, and as they're walking, Jesus appears to them, and they're walking along, but they do not recognize Jesus. And you will remember that one of those two disciples, we are told who he was. His name was Cleopas, Cleopas. And uh, why are we told his name? Well, one suggestion is, and we have an early Christian source, Hegesippus, he actually tells us that Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So, in essence, the uncle of Jesus. And you would think that they would have had quite close association, especially if he was maybe a disciple of Jesus. So, as they're walking along, essentially, it's not just a the two disciples who don't recognize Jesus, but it's one of his own family members doesn't recognize him. And you'll remember that when they arrive and uh, Jesus, he explains who the Messiah is and why these things had to occur. We read there in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, that's actually uh, the, the uh, story after Rotor uh, Emmaus, but it's the same thing. Paul Luke repeats 
Jesus giving this type of Bible study, and um, whenever you repeat something twice, it indicates its importance to the reader. So, essentially, when we go back to Luke 24, Jesus is opening up the Old Testament and explaining from verses why the Messiah had to die for them. And um, I would love to have the text that he used in these Bible studies. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe, and this is the suggestion, is that when we listen to Peter preaching and the apostles preaching in the early chapters of Acts, they are quoting from Moses. They are quoting from the prophets. They are quoting from the Psalms. And could it be, and I think this is plausible, that they are quoting passages which Jesus had explained to them earlier in chapter 24 of Luke. I think this is a reasonable suggestion. We are assuming that Luke wrote both accounts and that he wants a narrative that makes sense. If that's the case, we can look at the types of verses that the apostles are quoting from the Old Testament to see how they explain the death of Jesus. And I'm going to rattle my way through a couple of verses uh, from their sermons in Jerusalem, and you can follow and um, uh, you can see I've put up on the screen there, for example, Acts 4, Peter to the council, uh, the Sanhedrin, the same can Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. And here he is quoting from Psalm 118. And I want you to do the desert island text, uh, uh, test. Imagine you're on a desert island and all you have is this verse to explain why Jesus died what would your answer be to the question, why did Jesus die, if you only had this text to answer your question? I know it's a false scenario, but it's a scenario worth uh, uh, imagining because it helps us to actually note what is in the text before our eyes. So, let me read. Here he is quoting from Psalm 118. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. And we have a play on, on words there between stone and sun, which uh, sound very, very similar in Hebrew. So, here, if we only had this verse to explain why Jesus died, what would our conclusion be? Essentially, I would suggest to you that his death is an act of rejection. This is what it's telling us, is that you rejected him. This is why he died. Uh, let's move on to another passage. This is after Peter has been released uh, by the authorities, and um, uh, they meet up, and there is this outpouring of praise by the church in Jerusalem, and they give thanks to God for helping the apostles to be released. And they quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4, and this is what they say. Um, let me read from verse 25. It is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against His Messiah. 
Essentially, these guys believe in conspiracy theories. I believe in conspiracy theories. Not all of them, but I believe in this conspiracy theory. This is the conspiracy theory. If you read on the following verses, uh, they actually explain that the conspiracy is between Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. They all conspire together. They imagine vain things against the, uh, against the Lord, they take their stand, the kings, the rulers, against the Lord and against His Messiah. Essentially, they're using this verse in relation to the Lord, uh, and they explain how they killed Him, and they're using this passage to explain what they have done against the Lord in killing Him. It is a conspiracy by the rulers with the people to take out Jesus. Uh, let's have a look at another example. Now, forgive me, we're moving out from the Hebrews. We've got a Hellenist, Philip, but uh, the point deserves making. He's taken down south, and he's um, uh, on the road south out of Gaza, and he meets with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, he's there reading from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is one of those passages just chock-a-block with what we call substitutionary imagery. Jesus died on my behalf, in my place. This is what we have in Isaiah 53. Uh, we are accounted we accounted him stricken, verse 4. Surely he has borne our infirmities, carried our diseases. We accounted him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. He was wounded, what? For our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And it carries on like this. But the incredible thing is, is that when Luke records his account, uh, he, he records that the passage the Ethiopian eunuch is asking about is verse 7b and 8a from Isaiah 53. It's almost as if, and uh, we can debate as to whether he wants us to think of all of Isaiah 53 when he's quoting this one passage, or whether he's just zooming in on this one portion. Uh, for the time being, let's assume he's just zooming in on this one portion. Because note, if I answer the question, why did Jesus die just according to this verse, what type of answer do I get? Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, what was denied him? Justice. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? What a generation to do this. It was the ultimate act of injustice. So if I add these texts together that we've just looked through, and I have to ask the question, what was the purpose of Jesus? According to these sermons, I am told it's part of God's plan, but it was an act of injustice, an act of rebellion. It was just one of those things you hope never happens to you. These are the texts that are used to explain the death of Jesus in the sermons uh, preached by the apostles in Jerusalem, by the Hebrews. And I would suggest to you that it is important that we appreciate the theology of these texts. There are many, many Christians today even 
who go through suffering on behalf of their faith. We have many martyrs, and when we ignore this explanation of the death of Jesus, we are ignoring how folk who give up their lives uh, are able and go through tough situations are able to identify with their Lord and Savior who also went through injustice. Many, many followers of Jesus experience injustice, and we need to offer them uh, a Lord who can walk close by, uh, side by side with them and say, I too have been through the same experience that you are going through, and I will hold your hand through this, and you will see where I went through it, and I will take you through. So, here we have the passages that they used in their sermons uh, in relation to the death of Jesus. Now, how is this emphasis reflected in their preaching? And again, I'm going to fire at you a couple of verses taken from the sermons preached by the Hebrews, and you will see what they are saying to their audience. This is the main point to their audience. This man, this is Peter at Pentecost, handed over to you according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you did what? You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. You can only preach this sermon in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I can't preach it at Village Church or here in the Michigan Conference because we weren't physically there 2,000 years ago. We didn't physically kill Jesus. This is a unique message at a unique point in history, and it's, you guys, what have you done? You have killed crucified Jesus by the hands of those outside the law, the Gentiles. Here again, Acts chapter 3, Peter in Solomon's portico. This is the passage we just read. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You are, in effect, murderers. You exchanged a murderer for the righteous one, and you became killers yourselves. And then we have Acts 4, Peter before the council. This man standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So here again we have this emphasis on the death of Jesus as an act of, mur of murder, of uh, rebellion against God, uh, uh, you have been guilty of participating in this. Acts 5, verses 30 to 31, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. And we could debate what hanging on, an, on a tree actually means there. But God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior so that He might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So again, we've got this emphasis. You, are, you have killed him. You are killers. This is the message. And in fact, it's not just the Hebrews, it's the Hellenists who also preach this. This is um, one of maybe the most disturbing endings to a sermon that you will ever read. Stephen's message before the council, where he gives them this long history about how throughout Israel's history, Israel rejected the prophets, rejected Yahweh, and now he sent along Jesus. And what have you done? 
you have rejected him. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. So this is the message that is preached. I couldn't preach this to village today. (laughs) Uh, I have to preach something else. But this is the message preached in Jerusalem. It is the apostles coming and saying, guys, you acted in ignorance. You have killed the righteous one. You've killed the Messiah. And it was predicted. You have killed him. Well, how are they to respond? And um, what we don't have, uh, <clears throat> these are just some scholars who uh, I don't think time allows us to go through this, but it's simply to mention that many scholars note that when we read this portion of Acts, the death of Jesus is not explicitly linked with salvation. Instead, salvation is, as in the Old Testament, this is early Christian theology. They don't have time to make sense of, of um, uh, uh, the death of Jesus yet. Uh, <clears throat> uh, what they cannot preach is this, Jesus died for your sins so that you can be forgiven for killing Him. I mean, there's a certain sort of uh, 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 <laughs> illogical point there. That's what Peter cannot preach in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you've killed him, but good news, he died so that you can be forgiven for killing him. That, that would be sort of a, an illogical message to preach. That is not what we find the apostles preaching. Instead, they preach, you have killed the Messiah. You have wiped him out. You have rebelled against the Lord. But this was part of his plan. So, this raises the question, Uh, what started Christianity? I would suggest to you that as we study early Christianity, we've started here with the Hebrews. As we go through, we get the Holy Spirit leading them into more and more truth, that they understand that God died, and it wasn't a disaster. It was part of God's plan. And at that point, they are not in a state to make sense of the full depth of the wonder of the cross. But as time goes on, as we read through the New Testament, we find that they get this sense that his death was not just an act of murder, but it was for us. It was for me. Somehow it relates to me personally, and it relates to my sins. And this is what we find as we go through the New Testament. We find that especially in the last books written Uh, by our uh, New Testament writers. Think of Revelation. Think of John. Think of Hebrews. These are the last books written. The death of Jesus is the thing which is being glorified and being praised. Uh, You think of Jesus, the slain lamb um, before the throne in Revelation uh, 4 and 5. Think of Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb. Uh, Christians were led into more truth over the decades after the death of Jesus. And this movement is witnessed in our New Testament so that now we can look back at the cross and we can just fall at the cross and say thank you for this great act of, uh, of kindness and love and grace. So, there we have uh, an overview. Uh, so, but it leaves us with a historical question, what started 
Christianity. This is the puzzle, because they're going around saying, you killed the Messiah, you killed the Messiah, you killed the Messiah. That leaves us with a historical puzzle, and the historical puzzle is this, and this is what I've just been going through in my intensive with our students at the seminary, because we have in our Jewish sources, and here is an example from Josephus, we have stories of lots of uh, guys who would set themselves up as messiahs. They would gather a, a following, the authorities would kill them, and that would be the end of the story. Here is one which I would just like to share with you, just so you can see how close it is to the story of Jesus. This is recorded by Josephus. It's leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 66, and he tells the story of Jesus, son of Ananus. Uh, and Jesus, son of Ananus, he was a plebeian, a common man, a husbandman. He's a shepherd, and he went around for four years, Josephus tells us, before the war began. And he went around Jerusalem, and he was crying, and this is his cry. It's a prophetic cry, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides. I mean, basically everyone, a voice against you all, I am God's messenger telling you judgment is coming. And he went around preaching, woe, woe, woe to you, Jerusalem. Well, that got the backs up of many. And they took him and they beat him and they uh, gave him a good working over. But um, uh, while they're doing that, he simply offered the same words. He didn't hit back. He didn't say anything nasty to them. And then they handed him over to the Romans. They took him and they whipped him till his bones were bare, yet he did not make any supplication for himself nor shed any tears, but turning his voice to, them, to the most lamentable tone possible, at every stroke of the whip his answer was, woe, woe to Jerusalem. You know, there is the possibility that Jesus actually predicted that folk like this uh, would come to Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 34, he says to the Pharisees, I will send you prophets and scribes and wise men. And it may be that this is one of the prophets sent by Jesus to warn Jerusalem to turn away. Well, in the end, they let him go, and he carries on with this until when the Romans come, you read at the end, he's preaching his simple sermon, woe, woe, and then a uh, uh, catapult fires a stone over the wall, and it hits him, and he was killed. Now, history tells us what comes of prophets like this, of messengers like this who are killed. Nothing. You murder a Messiah, and according to Josephus, that's the end of the movement. And yet, we are here today as Christians. We have to explain historically why it is that we are here today. And this really comes to the message, the main message of the Hebrews in Jerusalem. You see, they at this point had not made sense of the death of Jesus. All they knew was that it was according to God's plan. Instead, they went around and they are proclaiming not the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus would just be, okay, he's died. Let's go home, pack our bags, and go back to Galilee. 
But uh, instead, they go around and you just cannot shut them up. They go around and they are preaching the resurrection all the time. Their central point is, is that you killed him, but God raised him up. You killed him, God raised him up. When they are arrested, they are arrested, not for preaching Jesus died for your sins, but for preaching that Jesus has been resurrected. This is the historical event which started Christianity. Without this, we wouldn't be here today. Secular folk they claim that the theology of these disciples led them to believe that Jesus had been resurrected. I would say no, 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 no. Their theology didn't predict this. The only thing that can explain this is that Jesus really rose from the dead. And it is for this historical reason, when I compare Luke's account with what I read in our other Jewish sources, that I have this firm historical conviction that I serve a risen Savior, and that He is alive. And wow, okay, now I have to make sense of why He died. But He is risen, and we have seen Him with our eyes, and we proclaim Him. And you can lock me up, you can beat me, you can do whatever I want, but I know this is the conviction of the Hebrews, just thrilled that though Jesus had been killed and you have murdered him, but he is alive. And so their message is this, their final message, and let me come to my final slide, is this, there is good news for murderers. This is the message of the Hebrews, is that you can kill the Messiah. You can kill the righteous one. You have murdered him, but God has raised him up, and here is the amazing thing. He has not rejected you. He has given you one more chance. He is inviting you to repent. What did Peter preach? Repent and be baptized. He's not talking to people who've just uh, maybe diddled their IRS tax receipts. He's talking to people who have murdered the Messiah. And if he could offer that invitation to his own murderers, I am convinced that whatever I have done in my past, I can receive forgiveness in the name of Jesus. This is the message for me, is that I serve a loving Savior who preached, who cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then afterwards, He sent His apostles to His own murderers and invited them in one sermon, two sermons, three sermons, sermon after sermon, please repent. That's the Lord that we serve, and it's a Lord which I am drawn to, and my invitation to is that whatever you have done, join the crowd before Peter and listen to his sermon. We may not have killed with our own hands the Messiah, but we can still hear that invitation to repent, and there we have the love of God on show. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank You just for the tenderness of Your heart, the forgiveness that just removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. We thank You that You are a risen Savior and that for good historical reasons, Lord, we have a sure foundation to our faith. May we love Your name. May we proclaim it and day by day, may we grow in our understanding of this great sacrifice that you offered on the cross. This is our prayer this afternoon, Lord. We pray with love in our hearts. Let the church say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.